Okay, tonight we're going to be uh, finishing up our study uh, on the divine story from Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Anybody feel like reading for us? We're going to do the whole chapter. Um, we've had some good readers this summer. Anybody feel like uh, taking it on for us? Good, Will Nettleton. Thanks for volunteering and being willing to do that. Genesis chapter 4 as our beginning to that. Knock stuff out. The whole chapter? Yeah, the whole thing. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work at the ground, it shall, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If, any, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, stop there. Actually, we don't need to read the rest of that because a lot of names and stuff like that. That'll be okay just to end there. All right, look, y'all, we're going to conclude this look at the storyline of the Bible uh, by, by basically wrapping this up with an epilogue. Um, and by epilogue, at least as far as we've been looking at, I mean simply the big so what of the story of the Bible. Again, our premise this summer has been to consider, um, you know, the, the, the Bible comes to us uh, in a lot of different forms. It comes to us in the form of teaching, sort of uh, simple rules for living. It comes to us in the form of uh, history. But what I've tried to cast the teaching of Scripture in this summer is to begin to look at what the Bible says as if it's a story. And actually, if it's a true story, it's the ultimate story. And if it's the ultimate story, then in some way, all of the little stories that we end up sort of having exposure to in our lives somehow end up being about that story. And so what I want to look at tonight is after we've considered all of these great topics of, uh, of, of what mankind was created to be, how mankind failed in his achievement of that, uh, of that creation, and how God is uh, working to restore that, I simply want to ask the question, so what? <laughs> what does this mean for the way in which a person who wants to be living out the story of Scripture, what does it mean for the way in which you look at life? And the interesting thing that I think that you'll find is that it's completely unique to, from, from the way in which the world looks at it. In other words, we kind of get to sort of the moral of the story, if you will, tonight. That's the approach I want to take a look at it. Um, but look, from here on out, according to Genesis 3.15, 
The history of the Bible is two various lines of mankind. There is a faithful seed, okay, or progeny, or descendants, and then there's the faithless seed. And the two are constantly at odds with each other. Adam and Eve must have been so excited to see their son, their new son, this fulfillment of this promise, right? However, in God's eternal plan, there was something, there was going to be a difference in the way things were going to happen. When God begins to see the children of man come along, he makes a decision from the very first family that the older will actually serve the younger. Now, that doesn't sound all that weird to us because we live in sort of a fundamental uh, meritocracy. We look at a family of children and think to ourselves, well, whichever one is the best ought to be the one who gets the most privilege. That's not the way it worked in an ancient Near Eastern society. In ancient Near Eastern societies, the oldest child had all the privilege, was the one upon whom all of the future hopes (coughs) of the entire family rested. The oldest child was of distinct privilege. And yet, throughout the Bible, you will see this bizarre theme that constantly, back and forth, the older is the one who serves the younger. That it's the younger, the disenfranchised, the one who gets uh, the least amount in life, who ends up being the one that is the most blessed. Lock that away, y'all, because it is, in many ways, the very key to understanding the kingdom of God. I would even go so far as to say, if you're going to see the story that God is telling in human history, you've got to get this fact down pat. So I want to introduce this in under three uh, headings here uh, as we look at it. Uh, The idea of sacrifice, the idea of sin, and the idea of salvation. And how convenient that they all begin with the letter S. Once again, helpful alliteration for all of us in our, um, yes, in our remembering things. But look for this one thing through this. What you're going to find in the Bible is that the constant theme of the kingdom that God is building and the story that he is telling is that the insiders are sent out. And those people whom the world would call outsiders, they're the ones that get to come in. If you can grasp that idea, you'll understand the very heart of what the story that the Bible is telling uh, is happening. Okay? All right. So the first idea that I want to look at is this idea of sacrifice. All right? The Bible is loaded with uh, all kinds of examples of people who seem to be completely alike, but actually are polar opposites when you see their lives. I mean, here you have Cain and Abel, right? Same family, same parents, same teaching, same upbringing. And yet, they know something. They know that when they approach God, they have to come with a sacrifice. Now, for us, that's very foreign to us. We have sort of an overly familiar view of God in our particular culture, Uh, um, you know, back in the 80s, people used to have these terrible bumper stickers. And I remember when I was a youth minister back in the day driving around and someone had put a bumper sticker on their car that said, uh, uh, God is rad. He's my dad. (laughs) It wasn't just bad, it rhymed. It was both. uh, Multiple offenses in that sort of statement. Uh, The ancient Near Eastern people knew that God was not putting on a come-as-you-are party. In order to go to this God, you had to bring an offering. Because they knew intuitively that they weren't okay in and of themselves. Um, now, there's a lot of people that think, think that that's because they had this view that God was some cranky, uh, sort of moody deity who was looking for his uh, pound of flesh from his people before he would accept them. But actually, the ancients knew something a little more about their own human nature that was teaching them about this. And we still know a good bit about this. 
Um, even though we like to, even though we look and kind of condescend to ancient people and are like, how terrible for them to bring animal sacrifices and spill blood so that they can have a relationship with God. Me, oh my, how primitive. Mm. The idea of sacrifice is nowhere near as foreign as you think that it is. Look, um, when we want to be approved by people, we typically do our best to control what people see. You could imagine the illustration of a, um, of a politician. This is an illustration I heard Tim Keller use uh, uh, years ago. Think about what a politician does, right? A politician comes to you and he only allows you to see the information that he wants you to see, Right? And so what he comes to you with is he comes to you with an offering. He shows you his credentials. He shows you his plan for a new future, right? And he's got a pitch to you. In other words, he finds a way to present himself, you following this, that he knows will be acceptable. So in other words, these ancient people knew something that we kind of do all the time, but that we don't know how to admit to ourselves. We always have something that we default to in order to create an air of acceptability. That, the Bible looks at and understands, is sacrifice. Now, please, I'm not, I'm not taking jabs, at least at this moment. But I would say that if you have any exposure to the campus culture at Ole Miss, you're not going to understand your experience here until you realize that Rush is worship, okay? I would say it's extraordinarily vivid forms of worship. Now, some of you are going to get bent out of shape by this, and that's okay. I want you to know that I still love you, and I hope you'll accept me too. Uh, when I first got here uh, many years ago, my wife took me to go see all of the Rush festivities. And at our particular school, for those of you that are from different schools, glad to have some visitors here tonight, and the way in which we do it is, is uh, the girls especially uh, are brought in sort of large groups to each individual sorority house. And in order, you know, they stand outside. And what will happen is, is the doors will swing open and the sorority will begin their big cheer and their all excitement. And the girls will file out of the house to go grab uh, a, a potential, um, what do you call it, a rushie? A rushie. You grab a rushie <laughs> and you take them inside. And I watched this exercise with great interest because I thought it was very interesting how spiritual that was. Because in some ways you had these sort of potentials standing on the outside of the Holy of Holies, okay, looking on the inside. But here's the thing. That rushy is not acceptable. They're not allowed to pass within the hallowed halls. They have to be accepted. Why? And they have to have someone who will come and bring them along and escort them into the halls of power and Mississippi influence. <laughs> now, I recognize that you're saying, ah, ah, ah. I'll get defensive about that, but I defy you to say that it's a different feeling for a freshman. And the only reason why you think it's not that way is because you forgot what it was like to stand outside and wonder if I'm acceptable enough to pass into the halls of Mississippi acceptability. It's there. Now look, that's a very formal way of looking at it. I'm telling you that we do this all the time. We are constantly bargaining with ourselves to find capital for acceptability. What is it that ushers me into this? Now you'll understand why Cain and Abel's sacrifices dealt with things the way in which they did. You know, it looks like Cain kind of brought his stuff and Abel brought his stuff and God just sort of arbitrarily said, you know what, truth is, I kind of like lambs better. 
Uh, you should have brought them. No, that's not what it is. Hebrews chapter 11 actually tells us what the difference is between Cain and Abel. In Hebrews 11, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. That was the uniqueness of Abel's sacrifice, was his was brought out in faith. In other words, Abel lived out God's word to Adam and Eve that had been delivered in the chapter before. Remember what we talked about last week? How was it that Adam and Eve could be acceptable to God? It was only because God had made for them coverings. And, if, and, and, and those coverings were there to make them acceptable. And something had to die in order for that to happen. Well, there was something, and most commentators agree with this, that Abel got in that. And he said to himself, in order for me to have a relationship to this God, something has to die. And so he offers the sacrifice of blood, a blood sacrifice. In other words, he understood that there was no way to cover himself. You know, he probably heard stories of the old fig leaf outfits that they had and how ridiculous it was to try to cover themselves. And secondly, they suddenly realized that if someone was going to actually uh, have access to God, someone else would have to pay the price. And so he offers a bloody offering when he does so. But when he looks at Cain, he realizes that Cain gave out of his excess, but he didn't sort of follow his path by faith. It wasn't a faithful offering. And all of a sudden, something happens. God goes to Cain and he warns him. He says, Cain, you've got to be very careful because your sacrifice has been rejected. In other words, what God does is he basically comes. How do do I say this? Well, he comes and says, I'm going to uncover your facade. I'm basically going to make this sort of thin veil that you've put over your life, Cain, of acceptability. It's all crumbling down around you. And I'm going to bring it down. But then he warns Cain, he says, but you need to be careful. If you make a right sacrifice, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin is what? Crouching at the door. This is a, this is a huge point here that I really want you to get tonight. One of the most interesting aspects of the story that God is telling is that when all of a sudden life <laughs> or God's experiences or your own failure begin to all of a sudden cause the ways in which I've made my life manageable to me to work, sin is crouching at the door. And that brings me to the second point. We see what sacrifice is. When the sacrifices of acceptability that we're holding up before the world begin to fall, God says sin is at the door. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, in verse 7, it says that sin is crouching at the door. Now, why would you crouch, by the way? Why, why would you sort of hide yourself? Uh, if you're crouching, what are you doing? You're trying to make yourself small. You're trying to make yourself unknown and subtle. You crouch in order to make people think that you're insignificant. That is what God says to Cain sin is trying to do because sin is always going to present itself in a way which defies what it really is. You ever thought about this? Sin can come across as a million different things. Sin can come across as virtue. You know, some people say, you know, I'm not obsessed with my looks. I'm just conscientious about my weight. In other words, trying to praise myself that I really am okay about all this. Uh, Some people will present their sin as, uh, as justifiable, you know. They'll look and say, yes, I know I'm angry, but you don't know what they did against me. You don't know how they've harmed me. Other people will describe sin as simply being insignificant. They'll be, well, you know, I mean, it's just a fantasy that I carry on in my own head. Nobody gets hurt. It's a victimless crime that I'm committing. 
look, y'all, sin's greatest ability is to make you think that it's not there. You've heard me talk about this before. When Jesus looks and says that Satan is the father of lies. doesn't say he's the father of lust or the father of evil, things that would have been appropriate, but he's the father of lies. In other words, the, father, the devil is best at making you think that sin is not there. This is the old usual suspects line. Um, the usual suspects, people watch this movie. It's among TBS new classics. Surely we know this. Kevin Spacey won an Academy Award for this, as a matter of fact, uh, where he says the whole thing. Uh, you know what the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was, don't you? Convincing the world that he didn't exist. That's the idea. In other words, sin's greatest ability is to make you think that it's small, that it's crouching, that it's hiding, that it's subtle in the process. But here's the kicker. What does God say to Cain? He says, but you've got to understand that sin's desire is, and here's the phrase he uses, is for you. My son is rummaging through his uh, toy, uh, toy box there, but that's okay. You got what you need, buddy? <laughs> the fun thing is, it makes for the funnest uh, sections of the uh, of the podcast. People are always like, "I love it when you talk to your children when they're in the, in the podcast." Well, there you go, podcast people. Now you got it. <clears throat> but what God warns Cain with is, He says, "Look, Cain, you've got to be careful because sin is crouching at the door, but its desire is for you." In other words, it wants to consume you. In other words, to whatever degree, Cain, you're thinking that you have the ability to manage this aspect of your life, you can't do it. You're not doing it. You're not able to do it. It's not actually going to succeed in you. Um, look, eventually sin uncoils. Um, you know, years ago there was an illustration I remember hearing about the guy who trained um, his giant boa constrictor. You ever heard this old illustration? I should have looked this up and found the specific names for it. You help, my darling. <laughs> um, um, but there was, a, but, there, but this old story about the, the circus trainer um, who had a pet boa constrictor that he would do this little thing where he would bring the you know the huge snake out you know of his cage and the snake was trained to sort of uh, come up and wrap around him and the man had trained him to where he would just do a little flex the the the. Um, the snake would go loose and drop to the ground, and it was apparently this strong man kind of thing, until one particular evening, you know, the crowd was watching the strong man with this snake wrapped around him, and he did his little flex, uh, and instead of the snake dropping to the ground, the only thing that the crowd heard were the crushing of the man's bones as the snake suddenly decided to be a snake <laughs> and to do what the snake knew he was good at doing. Um, <clears throat> That's the it's a great illustration of sin. This idea that we think that it's going to be manageable. We think that it's there in a small thing. And we use every way that we can to gloss over it. And to say that it's, that it's not something than what it really is. But God looks at Cain and says, sin is there crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. It wants to bring you down. <clears throat> Look y'all, it's a huge aspect of God's story. In order to be living God's story, we have to have a respect for sin. Are you open to criticism? Um, are you a defensive person? <clears throat> Defensiveness is, is, is not a very good personal attribute. And I'll tell you why. If someone comes to me and says, you know, Les, there's this thing that I really think you ought to think about in your life that I notice that you may not be seeing. If I look at that person and say, oh, really? 
You're telling me that? Okay. Uh, excuse me, you need to get this log out of your own eye before you go after the speck in mine, pal. If I get defensive about your critique of me, what does that suggest? Doesn't that suggest that I think that the sin you might be noticing in me is illegitimate? Um, look, y'all, the gospel <laughs> means that there's a respect for sin. So that if all of a sudden someone begins to notice something in me that might be false, my first reaction is, yeah. And the truth is, there's more where that came from. We respect those things. Do you have people in your life who can say this to you? Do you have people in your life who, have the, uh, who love you enough to say the hard things to you? Uh, my old line is, and I'll go ahead and say this to protect myself in the future, um, we love to do weddings. I'm doing one next weekend, the weekend after that. We love to do weddings, but um, um, if, if in the process of me hearing about you and your significant other, I find out that your relationship has the universal disapproval of all your closest friends, I love you, but I'm not going to do your wedding. Because your friends know you better than you know yourself. And if they are all looking around you saying, this relationship is bad for you. Guess what? It might be bad for you. If you ever find yourself saying, well, nobody knows her like I know her. Y'all don't know her the way that I know her. She's different around me. That ought to be red flag city for you. Because it means that you're trying to look and see the world through your own glasses. And sin comes along and says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Can people come in and critique? So, sacrifice and sin. Finally, though, there's something sweet, though, at the end of this passage. Um, Look, the kingdom of God, though, is a sweet and merciful kingdom as well. In other words, God comes first of all and begins to counsel with Cain. The first thing he does is he comes and talks to him about this murder, right? Uh, He initiates the process. He comes early in the process. He confronts him. Um, In other words, people who actually have come to say that God was doing something in their life will oftentimes report that when they really looked back on it, the truth of the matter was that God was the one who made the first moves. Most people have this experience, and I have this oftentimes too. I get a chance to speak to people who come to me and are like, I've come to a point in my life where I'm at a turning point. I just feel like something's going on. I don't understand this, don't understand that. I love to look at them and say, you know what, it sounds like God's already after you. And they all look at me and say, you know, you're exactly right. I think you're right. I've sensed the same thing. We used to sing a song in RUF back in the day uh, uh, called Always uh, Thou Lovest Me. And the chorus had this great line that said, um, it was not I. How did it go? Um, Oh, great. I've just turned to blank. Um, It was not I that found, O Savior, true, but I was found of thee. You know, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord, but afterward I knew that he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true, but I was found of thee. In other words, there's this sense of knowing that God is initiating, that he's moving, that he's coming to get me. And then secondly, notice though that even after Cain's rebellion, God shows him mercy. He looks out and says, your punishment for me is too much. You're going to send me out of a place of safety where I'll basically be the victim of a lot of violence. And God says, no, that's not going to happen. And he places some mark on him. We don't know what the mark was. But for some reason, people actually left Cain alone after that in order to, in order to try to extend his grace to him. 
That's an interesting thought. Because even in the midst of Cain's rebellion of God, God is still after him. He's still after him. He's still extending his mercy towards him. Now, what we find is that Cain didn't, didn't follow through to any of those. The passage that I, I cut Will off early while he was reading it shows that Cain's family did not follow after the Lord. He continued to fall apart as he did. <clears throat> but in my opinion, one of the most interesting things that God says to Cain, and I'll finish with this thought here, is when God looks at Cain and says, Cain, why are you angry? In other words, in dealing with how the kingdom is going to, deal, is going to live in Cain, in being able to diagnose how he lives with his sin, he looks and asks what I think is a very profound question. Because he says, Cain, you're super out of it right now. You're angry. You're bitter. You have heightened emotion. Now, here's what I want to know. Why? I want you to trace that to its source. And I want you to notice that this is a huge piece of counseling for you right now. We get the clue to the answer of this in the meaning of Cain and Abel's names. Uh, Cain's name means successful. Uh, it means productive. Uh, someone who, uh, uh, who, who does, who, who sort of uh, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps persons. That's what the name Cain means. Abel, however, means a, a triviality. It means insignificant, a, a mere breath, as it were. In other words, Cain was the winner of the family. He was the favorite. He was the oldest. He was the one who was upon all the hopes of the family rested. Abel wasn't a success. Maybe he was sickly. Maybe he was weak in comparison to great Cain. So why was Cain angry? Listen to this quote from uh, DeGrath. This is a, 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 a commentator on the book of Genesis. He says, first came envy because Abel, who was a nobody, would be regarded. And he, Cain, a somebody, was disregarded. Mm, it's entitlement, right? His identity from the start was based on his relationship to Abel. Did you catch that? He was great because he was better than Abel. When God favored Abel, though, Cain had to readjust his identity or get rid of Abel. Does that make sense? He either had to build his identity on something else or he had to get rid of the problem, which is why he killed Abel. When confronted with what God says truly matters and is truly great, he has to exclude God and Abel. His premise is this. If Abel is truly what God regards him to be, then I am not who I understand myself to be. Now listen to this. The power of sin, this is so huge, rests not in an urge of violence, but in the reasoning of the perverted self that insists on maintaining its own false identity. Of course these reasons are only persuasive uh, to the perverted self and not others. That is why Cain keeps silent when God asks, why are you angry? He can't talk about it. <laughs> Look, y'all, talk about building your identity on the basis of how you measure up to other people. Now, I I've mentioned the, the sort of wild-eyed conformity uh, at Old Miss, you're blind if you don't think that this is not at the heart of our struggle and sickness at Old Miss. Building our identity on what other people says. Look, the essence of sin it can be stated as building an identity outside of God's approval of you. That's the definition. What makes you cool? What makes you okay? What makes you somebody? Upon what are you leaning? Or better yet, let's ask the negative question. About what are you frantic right now when it comes to your own identity? When it comes to how you come across to other people? 
when it comes to how lovable you are or are not to that significant other who you kind of wish would be significant, right? What are those things? Because God looks and says, I have an entirely different value system. So much so that as you begin to trace my work throughout life, (laughs) it's going to be the cast-offs that get me. And you know what? My kingdom is going to be a bunch of outsiders. Because the outsiders are the only ones who are going to understand me. All the insiders who have passed in further and further into realms of privilege in life will be building their identity and will tend to build their identity on the basis of their own performance. This is why I am who I am. This is what's made me me. And they're going to use that, maybe not to murder somebody else, okay, but they'll certainly use it to condescend to others. They'll make snide remarks behind those other people's backs. They'll take every opportunity to gossip about that other person so that when they're brought down, they can lift themselves up in comparison. They'll spend their life sort of measuring who's up and who's down. Look, y'all, who is in and who is out in your social calculus? What criteria do you employ to measure those who will be in and those who will be out? (laughs) You're not thinking if you're not thinking about the Greek system at this point. You're not thinking if you're not thinking about what it was that made your social group your social group. Why are your friends the friends that they are? What criteria of acceptability did you meet in order to pass into those halls of acceptance? Because sin is building your life on something other than God's commendation. And that means that the privileged aren't going to get it. But guess what? The outsiders, the lost, the sort of hurting the ones that have been disenfranchised, the poor, both economic and spiritual, are the ones who have a tendency to kind of, they kind of get it a little better. And so the gospel is more natural to them. Look, (laughs) y'all, the divine story that God is telling means that we have a completely readjusted view of privilege if you're going to be living out this story. If you're living the Christian story, you're the kind of person who doesn't see the world the way in which other people do. You see it entirely different. Uh, Look, ask a couple questions, and I'll finish with this. When things don't go your way, do you get angry with God? Doesn't it show that if all of a sudden I get angry with God, doesn't it show that you think that there was something that He owed you? I'm angry with God because He didn't give me this set of, uh, of circumstances that I wanted. Look, um, what's very interesting is Cain's, secondly, Cain's tend to hate Abel's. But you know, Abel's don't hate Cain's. Cain's are always blaming other people. They feel superior. Cain's feel like Abel's are arrogant though. Cain's look at Abel's and say to themselves, you know, they're so mad at God, they think they're getting a raw deal. But the Abel's of life, the disenfranchised, they're sure God loves them. You want to know why? Because they know that they didn't have anything to bring him in the first place. They know that it's all of grace no matter what. Look, y'all, if you don't get that idea, you're going to miss the central feature of the kingdom of God. And in my opinion, the most descriptive feature of what living out the Christian story looks like. And it has everything to do with the kind of people that you associate with and the kind of world that you build up in the process.